and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the double L team, Larland. Lawson. Lawson, how are you this morning? Oh, dude, I am just stoked. Just stoked on, stoked on life. Yeah, dude. Like, yes. Well, last night we had another um, get-together for our Revelation of Hope series. It was really fantastic and powerful. We talked about the ancient sanctuary, and then we ate amazing food and hung out, and I was just basking in the social time and friendship. And like the extrovert that I am, I was like, just sorely needing it and experienced it and was really happy. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And of course, uh, you'll be you'll be back again this weekend. Yeah, with, yeah. Uh, getting together again on Friday night and then Saturday morning with Kale DeWall at the uh, Warners Bay Adventist Church. So it's oh, it's gonna be so good. Like it's been so good so far. And you know what's so crazy too, like. I think a lot of events that I've been to in the past has been like everyone kind of, you know, listens to the presentation. They might eat the light refreshments that come afterwards and then they just go home. Whereas like, I, you know, I have to lock up the church. I'm like kicking people out. I'm like, get out. Like people from <laughs> people from the community, people from the church, like no matter who they are, like everyone just wants to stay and socialize because it's so. It's been such a drought. It, right. We're so deprived. And I'm like, guys, it's like nine o'clock. I need to lock the church and go home and go to sleep. I have faith in him tomorrow. And so, yeah, I'm like, it's when you, it's out, when you start it's switching the lights off one at a time, you know, the, yeah, that's the right. traditional way of kicking people out of a church at the end of a <laughs> program. Yeah. yeah, that's right. What are you going for? Oh, uh, this, 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 uh, Saturday, this Sabbath, I'm going to be preaching at Singleton Seventh day Adventist oh, church. Epic. Super looking forward to hanging out with those guys and being able to preach a sermon live rather than sitting in front of a Zoom screen mm-hmm. is going to be absolutely phenomenal. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, let's ta- hear about some positively different news. What have you got for us there, Lawson? Okay, so check this out. There's this guy. His name's jo- uh, Dr. Joseph Tobias, walking around in Ghana, observing animals and whatnot. And then him and his research partner, as they're, as they're walking, they see this massive bird fly overhead, like huge. And they're like, oh, man, that must be an eagle or something. But then the this bird it lands on a branch in front of them and what they actually saw for the first time in over 150 years um was the shelley's eagle owl the biggest owl in existence you're kidding that me. they haven't seen in 150 it's years the biggest owl that exists and no one's seen it that's right that's right. What kind of an owl is this? So since the 1870s, no one has seen this owl, nor captured a picture. No researcher has made a claim of seeing this owl. Like, no one, you know. This is the coolest story ever. But it landed on a branch for, like, 10 seconds. They had their cameras there with them, luckily. as Swung you know, the camera around, went just snapped. And you can see clearly, like, it's they've been able to fully differentiate it. It's got long-ass eyebrows and a big yellow ble- a beak and black eyes they were like no this is definitely a shelley's eagle owl and they've seen it for the first time so is it an eagle or is it an owl it's an owl it's just a massive owl that's why they call it the eagle owl 
Whereabouts is this? Where did they yes, find this Yes, they're, they're walking around in Ghana. Ghana. Uh, in the rainforest forest in Ghana. And yeah, this owl, um, they assume... This is the thing, though, is that they know that this owl and the behavior of this owl, it is incredibly reclusive. Like, it is just well, like... Well, that's the nature of all owls, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but like this one, apparently... Fly around at night. To be the biggest owl and nobody's seen them, like, it's like... They're full on, like, they don't know where they nest or breed so they assume that there's probably in that rainforest around a thousand of them but they just don't know where they are they've seen one and they're assuming a thousand yeah that's right is that because that would be a minimum number of owls to be actually have a viable population yeah something like that that that's that that's their assumption but this could be the last one this could be but like yeah and, and do they have a theory as to why it has never been seen in 150 years, I mean, apart from it being reclusive and just flying around at night, seriously, there's a lot of people who live in Africa, and this is a really big bird. How, how does how has this been missed? I guess like within this part of the rainforest in Ghana, like it's you know very enclosed. Like there not many people live in there. Like it's a super treacherous, gnarly rainforest that is pretty untouched and you know, conserved, you know, no one's going in there and it's cutting cool trees story. down or anything I like love these kind they, of they have a yeah, very low, extremely low population density in this area. So no one is seeing them until these researchers saw it and no one is and obviously we gotta assume like probably people have seen the owl but haven't been researchers or anything and probably haven't reported it. But in terms of, yeah, people who know what's going on, they haven't seen this since the 1870s and they finally have seen it. They've identified it. They know it's there. And so I guess from here, they're probably going to start trying to look for these more, uh, trying to observe them and, yeah, get a better grasp on what the population of them are. So really cool stuff coming out of Ghana. And speaking of flying, actually, wow, wow, it's 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 happening, bro. So a Japanese startup company called ALI Technologies have released a new product. They call it the X Turismo Limited Edition, and it is a flying motorcycle. Yes. So it's literally called a hover bike. Okay. 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 So this is um, VTOL. Right. Yeah. It's got propellers. Uh huh. And, you know. I think I may have seen some some information about this thing. Yeah. It's like all they've got at the moment. So they're like selling pre orders at the moment. So VTOL is uh, vertical takeoff and landing. That's right. That's right. Yep. 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 They're selling pre orders at the moment that are apparently going to, you know, like you're going to get your bike by mid. 2022, but all so this I've is like seen, one of these um, things you get like on the Mandalorian or something like that. Yeah, totally. Like, like it's like hovering off the ground, and so it doesn't actually fly up to thousands of feet. It just flies across the ground. Is that how it goes? No, apparently it can fly up to d- a decent height. Like it's not. It's you know, given that it's propellers, I I could imagine that you could generate a fair bit of lift on yes, it. Yes, yes. You know, there's like it's so it works on the principle of a drone. Yes. That's right. right. It's basically a dr- a massive drone that you can sit on. And you can get one, guys. You can pre-order one that's going to come to you apparently in sometime in 2022 oh even though my. even though I'm looking at this, all they have is a CAD drawing of it. They don't even have like a video or anything. So I'm a bit like, oh, okay. Um, but there's been big people who have bought in. Mitsubishi have bought in. They're backing the company. What kind of a license do you need to ride this thing? A motorbike license, that's, a car license, or an airplane license? It's like, or all three. Who knows? Like, but you can get one for the low, low price of 680,000 US dollars. <laughs> 
You can join the pre-order. If I owned a Ferrari, right? Yeah. I'd trade it in. I'd, I'd sell my Ferrari. To I'd, I'd be like, yeah, I'll have one of those. Thanks. Here, have my Ferrari. I'll swap you. Well, they reckon in terms of like its actual speed, it'll be able to fly for about 40 minutes at 100 kilometers per hour. That's decent. So like, you know, obviously. This I, could, being I could fly it to work. Yeah. Charge it up while I'm here and then fly it back and home. And then again. fly it home. Oh, yes. Dude, that would be the most epic. Like how oh, how are the yes. how are the cops going to pull you over, dude? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you can only go 100 kilometers an hour. Yeah, so. that's right. But the and I'm thinking like they sent out a jet to shoot you down, like because <laughs> they, they you have a jet flying around and then you can't respond because it's just a hover bike. It's not an actual aircraft with a radio. In it. it fascinates me how that uh, reality follows art. Yeah, totally. Art comes up with it and then we create it. Mm. And then we create something and art copies that and it just creates this cycle that goes round and round and round. And so what you see in the movies is something that in the future we actually do really see. Mm. The only thing I'm thinking with this as I'm looking at it is like what just stops someone from flying into a building or a house or, you know. Yeah, well, you have the same. Really, you, you've, if, if you've got a car, there are people who do those kind of things with cars and so forth as well. Yeah. Um, will it be used for nefarious purposes? Everything gets if, used for nefarious purposes. If I owned purposes. one, then yeah, probably. <laughs> 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 Might be uh, racing around down my backyard on my. On my I mean, there's going to have to be there's going to have to be some kind of regulation to uh, to deal with these things, else they'll bump into each other. But I guess they'll have um, anti bumping into each other. I think for the technology, the, the biggest thing they're going to find, at least in Australia and I imagine around the world, is classing this as a vehicle. Like, yes. like in Australia, segways are illegal because they can't class them for some reason. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Listen, I've got a friend. I've got a gift for you right uh-huh. here. Uh-huh. Here it comes. You ready for it? Uh-huh. There it is. There's a gift for you. <laughs> go, go, Didn't go, mom go, send go you that? It. Yeah. Well, how did, did you know? <laughs> she sent it to you already? No. Oh, well, yes. But, like, even if she hadn't, I would have known who it is. <laughs> it's a book that says, I love my air fry. <laughs> yeah. So this is definitely something for Lawson right But here. you own one, too. Oh, and we love it too. Yeah, isn't it great? Like, uh-huh. yeah, it's but healthier. For, well, for some context, Mon's like super anti. She's like, yeah, I'm anti appliance, but then owns like a toaster and a microwave, and I'm like, Shut well, up. she does live in a bus. Yeah, that's right. So you can't have too many appliances in a bus. But I'm like, dude, I would swap out a toaster for an air fryer all day. And of course, for those of you who don't know, Mon used to be Lawson. Yeah, that's no. no. <laughs> I don't like the implications of what you just said. But mine, yeah. <laughs> mine used to be on the on the show here uh, back in the day. Anyway, um, we probably should move on to more serious news. That's right. Okay, so in twenty twenty, Abigail Schreier released a book. Um, it was called uh, Irreversible Irreversible Damage: The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Mm. Uh, this was put out by Region Regenary uh, Publishing, and the book basically endorses the concept, the, the, the contentious concept of rapid onset onset gender dysphoria, which is not recognised as a medical diagnosis by any major professional institution, but it is recognised by pretty much every school that there is out there. Mm. 
Um, and she reveals research that there's been a sudden severe spike in transgender identification amongst teenagers assigned female at birth. Mm. So during the 2010s, uh, she attributed this social contagion um, amongst uh, to among highly high anxiety, depressive, mostly white girls who in previous decades fell prey to anorexia, bulimia, or multiple personality disorder. And so recently I listened to a speech that she made on YouTube. It was very, very informative and very, very confronting. Mm. Uh, I would encourage our listeners to, yeah, look up Abigail Schreier and to look at the material that she's put out because there is just some some really, really well put together uh, information that she has available. But in that speech she spoke about, and of course these this research is old now. Mm. So the book came out in 2020. You know, your most recent research that you'd have for a book like that is 2019, uh, 2018, etc. But she stated that there were some schools in the United States where 70% of the girls in the classroom, in the high school classroom, identified as something other than what they were born as. Mm. And that to me, I went, okay, so she said that and she said some schools and I'm thinking, okay, there might be one or two schools in the United States that might have this level of the craze that is actually taking place. Mm. So last night, Shell and I had the privilege of, so this is, I'd I'd share an anecdotal story this morning, had the privilege of spending some time with just some fantastic people. Uh, we got to hang out, have a meal together. It was amazing. Oh, well, uh, we, do this, we do this wow. thing in our church called Awkward October where you uh, get to spend time with people in the church that you kind of didn't know that well before. Mm. And uh, But what was interesting was that, you know, the guy that was there was sharing that his daughter uh, was in school and in his daughter's classroom, his daughter was only one of three that identified with what they were born with. Mm. One of three in the entire class. Yeah, wow. That's that's Those stats are off the charts. They're all transgender. They're this, they're that, the other. They're anything but uh, what they were, you know, born as. I, and, 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 and what was interesting about that was that it was – uh, you know, they're seen as kind of being the odd ones out now and they're kind of sidelined because they're like, well, you're not something fancy like we are and you're not brave like we are and have, you know, come out with it. And then I'm like, what year in school is this? Because I'm sort of thinking year 10, 11, 12, this is year six. Yeah. This is year six. Mm. This is the age at which kids should be playing with Legos. Mm. And the thing that is consuming them is their gender identity. Yeah. This is a seriously messed up world. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was his, uh, his, his sister's daughter, his niece, um, who is in a class where there is not a year six class as well, same age, same year, not a single girl in that class who identifies as straight. Not one. Mm. Not a single solitary one. And you cannot tell me that that is biological. Mm. That is not in any way backed up by science. This is a social contagion that is sweeping through young girls who are getting instant instant celebrity status by uh, proclaiming themselves something other than what they are. Mm. So you were going to say something a minute ago? Oh, I was just going to say I'd imagine too like 
you know, it'd be a pretty big step, like, you know, for the social contagion's sake to, you know, take the step and be like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a guy, you know, and then, like, go on to puberty blockers and all that stuff. Like, I feel like that, even though that's on the increase as well, but I, I, I've personally seen a lot of people kind of subscribe to the mentality and probably what's going on here, I'd assume, um, of, yeah, just, like, gender being fluid and it's like, oh, you know, I'm not, you know, um, she, her, I'm they, them. You know, I'm I'm not identifying because I don't know if I feel that way. Because it's trendy. Yeah, totally. It's all it is. Like it's just trendy. It's, it's just a it's just a fashion. Mm. And like and and if you yeah, I I guess like because there, there are definitely people who feel this way. And like the the ultimate evidence that shows me that there are people who struggle with gender dysphoria is because there's willing there's people that are willing to go through like gender reassignment surgery. Like if you're willing to take that step, then you're definitely struggling with that. And we really feel for those people. But at the same time, when you're a child, like a, a literal yes. child, a year six like, kid, that's what I'm pit- talking like about. Like a year Absolutely. six child, Thank where you for bringing that it is like it is a fifty fifty within the classroom of even hitting puberty yet. Yeah. Like like I it's just. It is can it is only be explained as a social contagion. A social contagion, yeah. That's right, absolutely. Mm. And we need to recognise this, and our educational institutions need to recognise this, and our medical institutions need to recognise this because universally, these children are being given puberty blockers without questions being asked. You mm. do, all you just have to say is, "Well, I, I identify as this," and bang, you got puberty blockers. Yeah, and that is going to have a lifelong effect. Mm. And this is why you're getting 90% of them that are, you know, we're now seeing that 90% are regretting it. Mm. Oh, it's, a, it's a, you know, when the, when the Bible said that the world would become messed up, like seriously morally broken just before Jesus came back, it was hard to imagine just how far that would go. Mm. Anyway, the whole concept of being gender fluid is being challenged by the anti-conversion therapy laws, which now ban you from praying for somebody who is supposedly gender fluid. And we're seeing those laws being uh, fought over in the UK right now, Um, opposition coming from the Christian Institute in the UK. Uh, And, of course, it removes freedoms from people who are gender fluid. They can only be one kind of thing, and you can only pray for one kind of affirmation for them. What a... You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Let's uh, head over to our interview of the day. Joining us on the phone right now is Scott Devlin from uh, Creation Ministries International. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Lyle. Thanks for having me on. Good to be with you again. Uh, we enjoy your presentations every month when you come on, um, or at least someone from CMI does, but uh, you've been with us the last couple yeah. of times, which has been great. Now, this morning, I understand we're going to talk about a passage of Scripture, a prophecy, in fact. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think it's um, it's really illuminating, understanding the past 300 years of history. Um, and then when you see this prophetic passage, was, which was written 2,000 years ago, and just to see how it's come true just in the last 200, 300 years. Yes, absolutely. Now, whereabouts in the Bible are we heading? So it's 2 Peter 3. So often, um, so you know us, CMI, we're talking about the Bible being real history, and therefore um, we really believe God made the world in six days because he's a 
good, big God, and he can. So often we get challenged on this and, and we get told, oh, okay, what about that passage? And people often don't remember where it is, but they've heard that the day of the, a day of, with the Lord is like a thousand years. And they say, okay, well, could, could the world not be made in thousands of years? And I, what they're trying to do is mesh the Bible with evolutionary theory. But actually, a thousand years per day is uh, nowhere near long enough to allow for the changes uh, needed in um, evolution. In fact, even the four billion year age of the universe is not enough to allow for the type of mutations that's needed for evolution to pass from one kind of animal to another. Um, but anyway, it still gets pointed out that this is a passage. Yes, it doesn't really solve any problems. It actually makes it a lot harder because you are then caught in a in, in, in a position where you're denying the Bible account, but you're also denying the evolutionary account. And so you're not backed up by either the Bible or modern scientific thought. Uh, and you've created a God who creates by death rather than a God of life. So you've got all kinds of difficulties when you go down that, that particular path. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and what's really interesting is the passage that they're referring to is in 2 Peter 3.8. And it says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Um, but of course, when you look at the context of this, you can just read the verse afterwards. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So really, this is about the Lord um, being uh, slow in coming again. Of course, we know he's coming back, but he's delaying his coming back because he wants more people to repent. He wants more people to be with him. And so, and so it's great. This is a really good passage. But just before that, so even more of the context is this 2 Peter 3 to 7. And this is the prophetic passage um, that's talking about what we've really witnessed here um, in Europe and in the Western world, I, I guess all over the world in the last 250 years. Um, and I'd like to go through, uh, uh, through that with you. So sh- shall I read it out? Yes, please. Absolutely. So 2 Peter 3, 3, it says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, so it's concerning things about the last days, it says, above all, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. There's a few more verses to read there, but I just want to pause there. So verse 4 is saying, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And um, this is actually uh, what we talk about as the theory of uniformitarianism. What it's saying is um, that things are just going on as the same as we see them now. And this theory of uniformitarianism was first introduced by a man called James Hutton. He was a English, um, well, he's considered a great English geologist. Uh, but he did something where he changed the philosophy of geology. And I'm going to explain how this links to evolution in a bit. Um, now, what he said, a great statement, which he said, so he was a man and he lived in the 18th century. And a statement that he said is, the past history of our globe must be explained by what can be seen to be happening now. No powers are to be employed that are not natural to the globe. No action to be admitted except those of which we know the principle. So you can see that that's very similar to 2 Peter 3, 4. 
where it says everything's going on as it has since our ancestors fell asleep. Everything's been going on as it has since the beginning of creation. James Hutton says the same thing. He says, when I'm looking at geology, I if I see a river eroding um, a gorge, then the rate of erosion must have been occurring at the same rate all the way back through history. And uh, so he named this uniformitarianism, and it's what all modern geology is built on. And, and and when when uh, you know just looking at that, it's it's incredibly limiting because it you know it, it, in in some ways what I see there taking place is an attempt to use empirical science to uh, and apply empirical science to historical science, which you know we know that we can't do, but we do it anyway. Yeah, exactly, and that's a really good point. And obviously, well, you've um, heard, you've been to a number of our talks, and you see, we always talk about this difference between historical and experimental science. But basically, um, all it is is we're trying to use science to determine what happened in the historical past, when really it might not be the best tool. Actually, the best tool would be written history, and of course, we know we've got that in the Bible. Mm. But here. Um, so this happened in the 18th century, and that uh, that really took off in geology, and that basis of uniformitarianism continued. And what it did was it excluded any catastrophism. Um, and so before before that time, actually, it was uh, most people accepted that a lot of the sedimentary layers, along with their fossils, were laid down by Noah's flood. In fact, I, even in Encyclopedia Britannica, I've got a copy of the a picture of a 1771 version. So it's in the 18th century. There's a big picture of Noah's Ark, the full size, and it explains the flood in detail. So this was kind of common knowledge um, throughout Europe in the 18th century, but really things changed then. And I'll just go on and read the next verse. And and this is what it says. Uh, Verse five says, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And so we remember at the beginning of Genesis, the earth's a water world to start with, and then the land appears out of the water. And then verse 6 says this, By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. It's so fascinating. It's fascinating. You, know, it just, you, you read that passage right there and you just listen to the language. The, the world was formed by water, and we look at our world today, and all landforms that we see are formed by the action of water. Yeah, yeah, so that's really interesting as well. And then that next verse, it, it's saying, by these waters, also the world of that time was deluged yes. and destroyed. What, yes. What's that referring to? That's the flood. Yeah, exactly. And so that the flood is the very thing that is not allowed by the theory of uniformitarianism, that is not allowed by um, the theory that everything's been going on the same as it has since our fathers, since our ancestors fell asleep, as it says earlier in the passage. So by eliminating the flood through the theory of uniformitarianism, um, modern geology has put in millions and billions of years because they need the same rates that are going on today uh, as always have been. But really, before that time, before the 18th century, we had uh, catastrophism was allowed in geology. Now, the reason this is so important is because James Hutton influenced a man called Charles Lyell, and he came just... um, 
he actually was born after James Hutton died, but he read James Hutton's work and he popularized the theory of uniformitarianism. And he was very keen to what he said in private letters, free the science from Moses. So his um, motives were very clear. And what he did was he popularized this idea in geology. And it was his book that Charles Darwin took on the Beagle, the ship which he sailed around the world on. And then he went to the Galapagos Islands. It's famous for him looking at the bird's beaks and him coming up with a theory of evolution. But he was fully influenced by Charles Lyell's book, which uh, talked about James Hutton's geology, which talked about the uniformitarianism, which is prophesied here in 2B to 3 would happen. People would forget the flood and think things were going on the same since the beginning of time. And it was this very book that Charles Darwin read. And the reason um, evolution has any kind of footing is it needs its footing in long ages because we don't see the type of changes in animals that lead to um, great changes, changes from one kind of animal to another kind of animal. So we have to rely, when I say we, evolutions have to rely on deep time. And deep time comes from geology originally. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is here is this prophecy 2,000 years ago says that um, this theory of uniformitarianism is going to come, come about and that's going to be the thing that people deny Jesus is coming by. So I really think that's true. When we look around the world today, we think uh, evolution is this great philosophy that's espoused, and it's the it's the atheistic crutch. It's the thing that allows people not to believe in God. And they also say, where is his coming? He's been... And, uh, which is really because they're not seeing the flood. If they were to see the flood and they were to see the history of the world through the flood, then they could understand actually Jesus is coming back again. And it's amazing. The other passages, which you probably know, Lyle, um, that he's, he's going to come and it's going to be like the flood. They didn't know the rains were coming, but it came suddenly. Um, so we know Jesus is coming back again and it's going to be sudden. And so I find this passage really amazing. Right there in verse 10, you know, right, right within the passage. Oh, yeah, at. yeah. You know? Yes, ah, it's just close by, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in, in it will be laid bare. Um, yeah, so I guess if, you know, if things have been going on as they always have been, and nothing catastrophic has ever happened, then maybe I guess we could blame God and say, oh, why has this happened so suddenly when he comes back again? But really, he's given us this warning here, but it's also in the rock record. When we look in the geological record, we have thousands and millions of fossils. And what are fossils? They're dead things. And what sediments are they in? They're in um, sedimentary rocks, which are laid down by fast-flowing water. We need a massive flood to create the amount of fossils we have in the world. And, and it needs to be a sudden and rapid burial. And we've got lots of experiments that prove that. So really, the fossils around the world are testament to God wiping the whole earth clean and starting again with Noah and his family. And it's a testament that's crying out that he's coming back again and uh, we have a responsibility to turn to Jesus. This is a fantastic concept. I've never actually linked the two together that the, the, the record that we see in the rocks is a record of something that happened suddenly in the past and Jesus says that when he returns it's going to be something that happens suddenly in the future and so God has given us a record of how he works 
and he does big things and he does them suddenly. That's a, a fantastic link. Thank you for sharing that. So it was a, a new kind of a thought for me right there. The other thing that sort of jumped out to me is that, you know, if we didn't have the concept of uniformitarianism, if we didn't have um, the rise of secularism, which scoffs at the Bible, so to speak, as, as, as the Bible says here, and yeah. if we didn't have people denying the flood, if we didn't have those three things, then this prophecy would not be being fulfilled right now, and we would conclude, well, we're not living in the last days, Jesus is not coming soon, uh, because this prophecy is not being fulfilled. But when we do see it being fulfilled, then we do have all of this evidence. It's almost, you know, it's, it's almost as if, you know, when somebody comes to me as a Christian and tries to promote the theory of evolution, that as a Christian, I can turn around and say, thank you for confirming the Bible and what the Bible teaches. You know, thank you for confirming it for me. Yeah, yeah, isn't that amazing? And so, although this, it, it's it's bad news for the unbeliever, um, but it is news that gives them chance to repent, and it is news that gives them chance to sh- for us to share the gospel with them now. But it's also, yeah, it's good, it's comforting for us knowing that wow, we're seeing by a Bible prophecy fulfilled in our day, just in the last two hundred, three hundred years. Because really, um, Charles Darwin, eight, 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 in the eighteen fifties, eighteen fifty nine, was his Origin of Species book, uh, which introduced the theory of evolution. So we're only talking 150 years ago, 200 years ago, um, that this prophecy has really been fulfilled. And it's interesting how you were talking about then um, about uh, people coming to you and saying, okay, why don't you include the theory of evolution in Christianity? Because uh, this was something that Charles Lyell, so he was the second man I mentioned. He was actually a lawyer that wrote this book, and his he had this real drive, and I was the one he, I mentioned of, he wanted to free um, geology of Moses. So it's very clear what he was trying to do. He wanted to get the flood out of the picture. And in one of his private letters, and I've just got this two-sentence passage here, he says, this is the uh, date 14th of June, 1830. He said, P.S., I conceived the idea five or six years ago that if ever the mosaic geology could be sat down without giving offence, it would be an in, and it would be a historical sketch, and you must abstract mine in order to have as little to say as possible yourself. Let them feel it and point the morale. Now, that last sentence is a bit confusing, but the first sentence is, you you need to get the context to really understand it. But you can see from the first sentence, he's saying that if we could free, uh, if the mosaic geology, i.e., so Moses was the man that wrote the first five books of the Bible, so he's the one that (laughs) wrote about the flood. So if if we could, uh, the mosaic geology could be set down without giving offense. And so in these letters, you can read some of his private letters, and his strategy was to introduce it to the clergymen, introduce this theory to the church without giving offense. And he had some contemporaries that were saying, oh, the Bible's all wrong because look at this geology and uniformitarianism, but he had a different approach, and it was to introduce it into the church in a nice way, to introduce it without giving offense. And he was very successful as a lot of uh, prominent church clergymen throughout the UK. So this was in the UK at the time, accepted the theory of uniformitarianism, accepted the long ages of the earth because of the way in which he did it and uh, yeah. perceived kindness which, with, with which he did it in. Scott Devlin, thank you so much for joining us. That's Scott Devlin right there from uh, Creation Ministries International. Um, amazing presentation. Right there. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.